Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm Simon Sweetman, and this must be episode 81. Um, this one was a really cool conversation, and it was, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating only to explain there was something a bit different about this one. Um, I spoke with a woman called Tammy Allen. She is the CEO of a not-for-profit mental health organisation called Changing Minds. They're based in Auckland. They advocate um, and, and support and help and work for people, primarily, I guess, Auckland-based, but they are across a lot of national happenings and they are available for people to contact them and run things by them and talk to them. Um, this was... Yeah, as I say, this is something that was, so therefore it was a bit different than some of the other conversations you've heard on this podcast, but uh, Tammy is a um, is an artist, an actor, uh, a creative type herself, so the focus about, in this conversation, we talk a lot about mental health, which I think is an important thing, a theme of this podcast, it does come up, um, and we're able to talk about this using Tammy's experience as a, uh, you know, her lived experience as someone who has had several diagnoses and medications and worked through a lot of things in her life. And then, of course, moving into working. That that all informed her decision to move into working in, in, in the mental health in the sector, in the industry. So someone, a friend on Facebook, recommended um, that I talk to her, someone that works in the organisation. And I, and I jumped at the chance because... Uh, you know, like the whole point of this is to have conversations with people to just um, find out what they do and, and how they do it. So, um, Tammy was in Wellington briefly uh, the other week. Uh, she was here co-designing a national network of lived experience leaders. It was an opportunity for people with lived experience of mental illness to learn how to use their own stories safely as uh, part of the National Depres Depression Initiative and the Like Minds Like Mind program, which is all about reducing stigma and discrimination. So yeah, that's that's really a big part of what we talk about, but we go pretty wide. We get into her personal story. Um, she grew up in Australia. She moved here as an adult. Um, she has been through a lot in her life and obviously if she's going to be someone at the head of an organisation that wants to facilitate and promote open and honest conversations then she's going to be able to have an open and honest conversation about her life and that's exactly what we did. So by the end of it it was like uh, you know two friends chatting I think and uh, I felt like I'd known her for a long time and we had literally just met when she agreed to turn up to my house um, to have this conversation. So. Yeah, you can Google Changing Minds. Um, you can find them on Facebook and Twitter, and um, they, you know, hashtag Changing Minds. We'll get to them if you want to send them something. Uh, Tammy talks about all of this in the podcast. She mentions all this stuff. Um, Changingminds.org.nz. I felt very, very honoured and privileged to have this conversation, and I hope that it um, exists now for people if, as you know friends and family and loved ones that you think need help or that you want to support or if you are concerned about yourself and you've never taken any sort of leap towards talking to someone um, this might give you some of the steps that you can take um, some of the contacts that you can make and um, and and put at ease perhaps some of the things you might have rushing through your mind I was so thrilled that Tammy came and did this conversation and as I said it was a, a real privilege to talk to her a real honour to meet her she's uh, uh, I think quite amazing person doing amazing things and this organisation is, is, is worth checking out and supporting. So this is me having a conversation with the CEO of Changing Minds, 
Tammy Allen. Let's start with, I mean, you're CEO of Changing Minds. Yeah. I, I don't usually talk to CEOs of anything. <laughs> I usually talk to, well, people who are CEO of their own life, and that's about <laughs> it. You know, I talk to... Well, that's kind of the same. Yeah. yeah. I, look, this is the first time I've ever been a CEO, so we're both learning. <laughs> right, right. So how long have you been oh, CEO? Since, since June last year. Right, okay. So yeah, you're not... Over yeah, 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 yeah. Still, now, still a baby. Yeah. Before we get fully into your role and I guess the the area that you work in and the, we can talk a bit about the reason you work in this area, but I want to get a bit of a, uh, I know you have a background in, in, in the arts as a, as a performer, so I want to maybe start with some understanding of who you are, where you grew up, uh, how you got attached to uh, music, writing, theatre, sure. any of the various things that you've grabbed onto. Wow, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a long story, but I'll try and cut it short. Yeah, yeah well, I guess I, I, I got into, you know, theatre at school, mm. and, um, and then from that I got a couple of paid gigs and television ads and um, on s some small parts on TV shows when I was growing up in Australia. Mm -hmm. And that kind of ignited a passion, I guess, because I thought that, wow, this is a real opportunity for me to not have to be me. For this mm -hmm. half an hour or you know eight week season or whatever it was mm. and I found a real I found a real um one it was really focusing for me I could kind of there's an end goal and I could concentrate on it but also it allowed me the freedom that I didn't necessarily feel that I had in my day-to-day -day life and within my own mind and all this stuff so that's kind of how I found my way into it but it was never I need I need to really acknowledge these people that do it 24-7 and that's their thing and that's what they do and that's what they have passion about because that's a really hard choice to make mm. and I tried to make that choice on several parts of my journey but in the end I wanted food on the table <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I want to be able to pay my rent so um, so I, I guess over the years I've made that choice that sometimes when opportunities come up I try and have jobs that allow me to dump yeah. yeah, what I'm doing for but the so two you, months or whatever that I'm working on a film. So it sounds like you made that choice before, I mean, that choice is being made for people now, yeah, right? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, we, we're in a constant content is free, it mm. should be free. If it's not, people will go to where it is free. True. So these people that have spent their lives writing, performing, yeah. um, creating, are suddenly going, oh, I need a desk job, I need a day job, yeah. or I need a night job, whatever, um, and they don't really want it, and they're not really no. prepared for it. So you made that leap before, or made that realisation before you got pushed into that. I did, but perhaps it was also my, my parents always in the background going, well, this is a great hobby. But, yeah, good you know. on you, but <laughs> get real as yeah, well. Yeah, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a heart pull that comes that when you go and you do a job that you don't enjoy mm. for the end goal of doing the job that you do enjoy. And I remember when I was at drama school in Australia, I had... It was the first time in my life that I woke up and I thought, oh, my God, I, I want to go in there. I, this is what I want to do. Mm. I want, I, you know, I'd leap out of bed in the morning I'd, and I'd be there early and I'd be raring to go. And it was they were the best days of my life because I, it was the first time I really knew that I wanted to, you know, this was a reason for getting up in the morning. It wasn't tedious at all. Um, and even dipping in and out of the arts, um, I thought, I need to have jobs that give me that sense of passion mm. and I want to wake up. And my, my job now is 
it gives me that sense of passion. But the most beautiful thing about it is that I get to bring the arts with me mm. as a vehicle mm. for the messages that we have. And so whereabouts did you grow up in Aussie? In Adelaide. Right. Yeah. Okay. I have no understanding of Adelaide at all. I have no, well, a tiny, tiny bit, but I've never been there. And sure you, sure that glass over there is full of our product. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. the beautiful Barossa yes. and McLaren Vale yeah, yeah, yeah. and Coonawarra. I was going to say, I know, I know that sort of thing, mm. and people have told me that, um, you know, it has a, 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 a sort of garden prettiness to it that's yes. similar to perhaps old school Christchurch and well, it's, things like it's that. Well, it's the same town designer, so mm-hmm. it's got, a, right. you know, it's a walkable city and a beautiful mm. city and it's got the green belt around it. It's but otherwise, it's like the Paul Kelly song, you know, as, yeah. as my reference, yeah, yeah. as or probably my, yeah yeah, 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 those those are my immediate yeah. reference points to um, it. And they're probably, they're probably both really good references. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a small city, it's one of those cities, it's a, they call it the 20-minute city. Mm. Um, which makes Auckland traffic a bit hard, but. <laughs> and so you lived there for a long time, like you grew I, up. I grew up there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, you have enough fondness. You return. Oh yeah, my yeah. family's still yeah. there, yeah. so I try and return best I can. But it's been a while since I was back. Um, then I moved to Sydney for work um, for a couple of years, and that's where my hubby, who is a musician, mm-hmm. came over from New Zealand, spent. 10 days with me, proposed on day 10, and then we decided, well, where are we going to live? Are we going to live Adelaide? <laughs> are we going to live Auckland? Or yeah. are we going to live halfway between Sydney? Yeah. Um, and it so happened that he owned a beautiful bush section at, that I fell in love with, and so we moved over here. Yeah. Um, yeah, and my son was quite young then. He was three, and he's 15 now. And... Uh, and just before I left Australia, there was a there was a film that I did where he played my my son. Yeah. And there was a scene where he had to throw a tantrum, and the only way we could make him throw a tantrum was give him a lollipop, and then just so, before <laughs> just before action, rip the lollipop away from yeah. him through this big tantrum. And um, I remember feeling that that was wrong. Mm. That, you know, he was not old enough to, to, make, to know that he yeah, yeah, was to acting understand that wasn't that. real. And um, it kind of put me off acting for quite a while because it was a situation that I wow. felt as an actor that I didn't really have a lot of control over. If I wanted the job, then I needed to do what I was told. And um, it stopped me from acting for a few years. Wow. There's the Lou Reed song called The Kids. Do you mm. know about this? It's, yeah. it's from um, his album Berlin. And um, I heard it when I was... I don't know, 13, and it really had this profound effect on me, like I I was a big fan and I got this box set and it's got all the liner notes and so I'm reading about it. Um, the 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 song is about, um, junk. That it's from the, an album that's about junkies. Mm. So the song starts, they're taking her children away because they said she was not a good mother. Mm. And the lyric is, is pretty harrowing mm. and it's the slow acoustic strum guitar. When it gets to the end of the song, you hear these kids screaming, and um, there's like three, I think three of them, and they it, it builds to this really ominous crescendo. The um, the producer went home to get that. He went home with a recorder and apparently said, um, "Hey kids, your mum's never coming home again." And press play on the tape, <laughs> you know, press record on the yeah. tape. And, uh, you know, I still find that really, really hard to listen to. So that just yeah. flat, as soon as you were talking about that, yeah. that technique, that lollipop, 
with, with your son, I was like, oh, this sounds like what that producer did and yeah. how awful that was. It was. It was It was awful for me. It was awful for um, my husband who just said, look, that's it. Until he's old enough mm. to know what he's doing, that's mm. the end of acting for him. And so was was almost the end of acting for me until he was old enough to act and he got his first professional role when he was eight years old. But... Um, but I kind of found my way back to acting because in the end I really loved it mm, um, mm. before that time and started with kind of local theatre again, which I'm still involved in. In Auckland. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and Auckland, I found when I started working um, in the industry here, and there is a proviso, you know, that I, I don't work all the time in the industry. I just mm. take opportunities as they come up. And But, but when I do, I found... Um, that it's just so much friendlier than it was in Australia. And I don't know whether it is there now. Mm. Perhaps it's changed. But, um, you know, when we work on a... I mean, I've worked on film sets in lots of different capacities and the, it's the same crew no matter where you're working. Mm. You see the same faces and everyone pitches in. And if, you know, I'm, you know you've, you're unit on one and you're a you yeah. know, third AD or another, whatever, you, yeah. you kind of move and you get to learn a yeah. lot. A lot more about the whole the industry as a whole and I just think it's a lot kinder and a lot more um, supportive so you ha- always had sort of you, I mean you mentioned before we started recording bar work like you always mm-hmm. had some sort of job as a fallback as a can yeah as a contingency yeah and to, to go to while yeah. you were seeking out my staff joke that um, every week there's a story that I tell that reminds them of another job that I've had that they didn't realise that I'd had before <laughs> and they, they laugh a lot and they're, they're like is there anything you haven't done but it's it's because of that the flexibility yeah, yeah, that yeah. they own and, yeah. and sometimes it meant that if I got a job I actually had to quit mm. in order to move on to mm-hmm. the, and then move on to the next one when that job was over and so that's why I guess I've had so many jobs but mm-hmm. with so many jobs has come so much experience. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. And where you find yourself now, mm. um, I imagine one of the the great things that you have is is the sheer amount of um, interaction you've had with people across mm. a variety of different platforms, yeah. both in your own artistic work and then in, in these various jobs, because people operate differently in yeah. different situations. And being able to draw those people back in yeah. to this work now. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about um, before we talk specifically about changing minds. Do you want to talk about um, what got you to changing minds? Yeah, sure. So um, changing minds is a mental health organisation, mm-hmm. and I started working in mental health uh, about twelve years ago when I when, when I first came to Auckland. Yeah. And it was was an interesting journey getting there because I had my first experience of mental distress when I was 15 years old um, and so I'm very aware of it with my son now and we've always mm-hmm. had those conversations growing up and then between the ages of 15 and 30 I was diagnosed with eight different mental health conditions of which wow. I don't tick any of the boxes for now and that was a an isolating difficult journey was there a lot of overlap in those diagnoses or the diagnoses or was this people attaching something to you and then you know coming up with a different probably a bit of both i mean i mean mental health diagnoses are not clear-cut no i was going to say that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but i but 
whatever the doctors or psychiatrists or the clinicians at the time when they get to see you really they only see what you're presenting with in that particular session or Mm -hmm. in that particular part of your journey and so you you might mention some of the symptoms of what you're going through and so they'll attach a label to that Mm -hmm. in order to prescribe the right medication or the right therapy or or hospitalization or whatever it is that they feel you need and so over that over that journey of time every time I became unwell Mm. It's like the new psychiatrist would say, well, that's not the right box that they've got you in. We'll put you in a different mm. box. Mm. And it would it would really depend on what I was presenting with at the time. And it was, it was quite a, a range of interesting labels. <laughs> well, the, the, the first thing I want to ask there, and I don't know yeah. if this is the right thing to ask or the right way to ask it, but, but how um, helpful and or harmful were any of those kind of labels and those diagnoses and sets of medications like was I it a case that of question we could talk all night just yeah, on that question well, alone let's see how we go <laughs> yeah okay so um for some people labels are really helpful mm-hmm. they they explain that what i'm going through is something that's not necessarily attached to me it's attached to this thing called whatever that thing is mm-hmm. let's just say bipolar for mm-hmm. example right they can say okay so this is means is i'm not i'm not nuts i've got this thing mm-hmm. right the difficulty is that that seems to be uh, helpful for a lot of people at the beginning of their journey. Mm-hmm. And who's to say what is the beginning and the end of a journey? Yeah, yeah. But for, for me, those labels at the beginning were kind of a, a validation that what I was going through was a real thing, you know, mm. not just going what was going inside my head. But as I got further and further along the path of getting relabeled and every time I became unwell getting more medication pulled on top more hospitalization at one stage I was in hospital for two months straight and then I you know you get really institutionalized very quickly so mm-hmm. you come out and you can't cross the road you can't answer the phone you, you know those really normal things that we would have are very frightening but I so in in labeling me through that journey I had attached all of my hope and all of my my wishes to the medical profession to fix me and one they can't fix you alone it's mm-hmm. it's a journey that you know ultimately is yours and you can get lots of different supports and help for it but it leaves you with a sense of hopelessness when these things don't work so they've labeled me again they've got me on more medication i still feel like rubbish mm. and so it really took an epiphany for me at the age of 30 when I stood on a, on a family holiday in Rarotonga and I laid out all the pills I was supposed to take and I started on one when I was 15 years old and at 30 I was on 10. 10 a day. 10 a day, all psychiatric medications. Mm-hmm. And, it, in you know, in Rarotonga it's really humid so they mm. had started to melt and I couldn't, you know, and they had mm. this kind of weird psychedelic thing of all the colours running together <laughs> yeah. and I was just standing there staring at them and my husband came up behind me and he said, um, look, don't bite my head off but I feel like I've been living with a zombie now mm. and it, it was a bit like that because I was kind of wandering through a life where nothing was particularly enjoyable but nothing mm. yeah nothing was terribly sad either mm. it was just a, a flat line yeah i've i've had it described to me before that um medications for a variety of mental illnesses 
will take off the the, the, the top and the yeah. bottom edge, right? Yeah. Like, so you live in the middle. So you don't it, get... Yeah. No one wants to take the top edge off. No, that's the great that's part. That's the exciting bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it also do, it dulls really strange things like colour, mm -hmm. you know, and, and taste. I was going to say yeah. taste as well, All surely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so he, he said to me, what do you think it would be like if, you know, we explored what the real taming was like underneath all this stuff? And um, I kind of needed him to say that I, he was willing to hold that risk mm. because doctors at the time um, didn't want to hold that risk. They mm. thought I was too big a risk to come off medication. And no one really teaches our clinicians how to help people come off medication if that's the choice they made. So mm. when we get ourselves into that position where we go, okay, it's my decision, I want to come off this medication, I want to see if I can put different pieces of my jigsaw puzzle together to make me whole again. Um, there's a real lack of support out there to do that, and it's really hard journey. Mm. I mean, some of the discontinuation side effects of these medications are, are hellish. They really hurt, and it's really difficult to, to find a clinician that's willing to take on the risk as you come off that. Yeah, yeah, and I guess um, just as uh, any one person, because of their uh, different you know, experiences and makeup responds positively to any mm. sort of drug. The the the, yeah. the come down, the coming off, the side effects, the negative aspects are different for each person, right? So That's right. You're yeah. describing something, and it just because it doesn't fit mm. the standardised checklist doesn't mm -hmm. mean that it's not real. No, but, that's but right. it also doesn't mean that a person is instantly equipped. To know your particular situation because it could be the first time that someone presents with that. That's right. Um, I want to ask you. I mean, you mentioned your husband. I want to ask you this question about um, support, but I also want to go a little bit further back. So I'm going to ask the question mm. first, then I'm going to ask you to take me back a step. Um, how silent was a lot of your journey through this? Um, oh, definitely. How silent. right. Definitely I was going to say, in terms of friends, family, support, people. Uh, my look, my parents knew. Mm. A couple of really close friends that happened to be around when I had an episode mm -hmm. that sent me to hospital, they knew. But generally, um, and we, I mean, we are talking. You know, we're talking twenty years ago to you know mm, mm, tw mm. twelve years ago. Mm. Um, but. Certainly there was a perception from myself and from my parents. My brother didn't even know. Mm. And my parents told him that I was having migraines and I was in hospital because of migraines. So there's perception and, and look, this is why I, I work so passionately mm. in the areas of discrimination, uh, was that by people knowing that this is what I was going through, it would severely limit my chances of being able to get a good job, get a good mm. partner you know, be taken seriously, all of those sorts of things. So we, we did keep it silent. In fact, uh, my parents were so concerned about how it would affect my future life is that they sent me to a psychiatrist that also happened to be a GP so that people would see me walking into the office oh, you're just going to the of doctor. a GP. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, there was a whole lot mm. of, of stigma, stigma, personal yeah, yeah, stigma, yeah. around owning up to that. And, and that, I think, is what kept me sick. Yeah, I was going to say, you learn to pick up on the, I guess, the anxieties mm. of your parents around mm. your anxiety and other yeah. concerns, other issues, right? You, you, you're you at an age, I imagine, when, when it starts at least, that you um, you go, well, this on some level, you go, this must actually be a good way to approach this. 
this, ma- this makes sense to keep this secret. Yeah. So, so profoundly quiet. And of course, quiet. I was yeah. I was really unwell, so I'm relying on other people to tell me what the best course of action is. Yeah. But um, like I said, the keeping that silence kept kept me sick because what I didn't learn was that there are other people out there that were experiencing the same thing as me. Mm. And that there, and even more powerful, is there are people out there that had gone through and come out the other side and were okay and were holding down good jobs and were able to talk about it and were able to support others. You know, mm. there was a real, there's a real empowerment in that. And I actually didn't find out that those people existed until I came to New Zealand and started working in mental health. And that started from a conversation with a friend in Australia that as I started to get well, um, she said to me, gosh, there's, you have learnt so much on this journey. You could, you could teach this to other people so they don't have to go through what you went through. And I know you should contact the government and say, I know how to fix this. <laughs> <laughs> so in my naivety, I thought, well, actually, that's not such a bad idea. Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I came over to New Zealand and I was, I was working as a flight attendant at the time. And I saw an ad that I, I'm, in fact, hubby might have even pointed that out to me. But I saw an ad that said explicitly that a qualification for the role is having lived experience of mental distress and recovery. And I I cried because I thought that that is, for the first time, that is something that's valued. Mm, I don't have to hide that. No. I, I, it's a qualification a for the job. That's right. It's a strength that yeah. I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And whilst I thought at that stage that I had recovered, <laughs> I had <laughs> actually... It wasn't until I stepped foot in that job and I realised that all the other people around me had the similar experiences to me that I my recovery really started. Mm-hmm. There's the, the fact that we could joke about it with others in the office and know that we we had this similarity to um, to share and that it was okay to come to work on a day that, that you weren't feeling so great mm. because people around you would get it. Doing the work that you do now, mm. how... Um how has that made you look at, I guess, looking after yourself, like under understanding the 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 ongoing journey, like yeah. Well, I I guess I'm constantly reminded that um, that I have to be the poster girl for mental health. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in saying that, the poster girl doesn't always have to have it all together. Mm. And there is a a comfort in. I mean, for example, today I had an incredibly stressful day, and. I guess probably most CEOs would understand what a stressful day looks like. Mm-hmm. It's par for the course. Yeah. But I'd say most workplaces and most managers and CEOs would, that would be the day that they shut their office door and say, I'm going to be by myself. But in my workplace, um, it is a culture of openness and respect mm. for that and valuing that openness. And so I said to my staff, I'm having a really stressful day. So people bringing me cups of tea, people giving me shoulder <laughs> massages, people saying, is there anything else you need? Uh. Is there stuff that I can do while you get on with this crisis management situation? You know, and, and everyone comes together. Mm. And it's, I mean, we've, we've recently, we're doing a, um, we're inviting workplaces to have a Mad Hatter's Tea Party for Changing Minds to raise money for us. Mm. Um, and we we have labelled ourselves as the happiest sort of workplace in New Zealand and I really believe we are because we have that culture of everyone not only looking out for each other 
but really looking inward about what it is that they can do for themselves and we have you know we have programs in the office that are about everybody's well-being so every monday morning a personal trainer comes in mm. and um does either exercise or yoga or stress relief or whatever it is our team needs mm. at the stage and then that sets us up for a week you know we have flexible working arrangements which is really strange because employees worry about flexible working arrangements but I found that actually I have to send people home you know? mm, mm. instead of them not turning up for yeah, work yeah, or yeah. You, people worrying that they're not going to do their hours they tend to do more hours mm. and they tend to be um, more productive because they're working the hours that they need to mm. get the work done to get the job done mm. and when a staff member recently called up and said look I just can't get out of bed today I just because we only employ people with lived experience in our organization I really value the mm. gift that that brings mm. as a mental health organization to get it to understand where that's coming well you're from. you're um, trying to um create and live an environment of trust and openness that's right so the i would say apart from anything else the i don't know if easiest is the word but one of the best ways you can try and get people on board to tell their story is having them know that you've lived some version of it right that that's the person right. that they're talking to yeah and yeah. the person that's advertising yeah. what the company does what the what the what the vision is yeah has has walked through it in some yeah. way and, and to see, for staff to see that in action, like mm. when that staff member called me and said, I can't get out of bed, I said, look, I understand if you can't, I've been there too, but I'd really like you to try. I won't make you do anything. I just think that it would be better for you to be in the office around people who understand. Mm. And that person came into the office and by lunchtime they were back at their desk working because they felt really warm and supported yeah, and it was better for them to be in bed yeah, and really yeah, yeah. safe. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, um, your first job in, in mental health mm -hmm. is what? Is <laughs> my, my first job in mental health was as um, a consumer advisor. Mm -hmm. So, my role was to sit on all the, uh, they call it multidisciplinary teams in, in mental health inpatient and outpatient community units. Mm. And I looked after... Um, about eight or nine different uh, mental health units of which most of them in in another world in Australia I had had some experience with so I looked after um, I advised to the child and family unit to the adult inpatient unit to the adult outpatient community services to eating disorders service to maternal mental health um, uh, the older persons obviously I hadn't had experience with that <laughs> yet um, inpatient and outpatient and I think there was what psych liaison perhaps was the other one I can't remember there was one more I can't remember um, and that was that was a baptism by fire because it was the first time that I was sitting at the table with you know clinical and support staff who you know there is a hierarchy in health we all know mm. that there is you know doctors sit at the top <laughs> and everyone else yeah so as a patient I was really at the bottom of that hierarchy and I had to learn really quickly that um, that in order for them to value my place at that table, I need to value my own place at that table and what I could bring. And what I could bring is really understanding what it was like for their patients, for their consumers, to, to go through mm. their system and um, where things might be going wrong. And so, you know my role was to kind of engage with the consumers of that service and work out how we could improve those services as well as 
doing things like um, sitting on interview panels for new doctors and nurses and OTs and social workers and things like that. So I did that for about a year or two um, before I was offered uh, a role to coordinate one of the Auckland projects for the Like Minds Like Mine campaign. And that's when I really hit the ground running and found my feet because that was the moment that I could bring all my arts experience in yeah, and use it as yeah. a vehicle for pro promoting um, mental health messages. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. So maybe we'll um, talk a bit about Changing Minds specifically sure. now yeah. and we can, I'm sure, come back to um, some of your story and some of your examples and, and, and things outside of that. Now I've got a few more questions but um, yeah, I want to know, I want you to Tell me a bit more about um, what Changing Minds does and means and um, and who it can help yep. and um, and what it exists for. Sure, you know. okay. Um, well, I want to start by saying that a lot of people, a lot of New Zealanders, um, they're really passionate about mental health, but they don't, you know, when you think about mental health and where you might donate your time or money to, there's mm. really only kind of one organisation that people think of because that's what you mm -hmm. Google and that's what comes up. But actually there's there's hundreds, mm. um, perhaps even thousands of um, charitable mental health organisations that are all doing amazing work. Mm. And we hear a lot in the media about um, the fact that there isn't help out there, there's not enough help. And I think, I think some of that is right. There isn't enough. Um, there's not, you know, enough to go around and... The wait lists are long, but the work that people are doing in their communities, in these small NGOs, um, are, is just astounding. So Changing Minds is one of those smaller NGOs. Um, we have six staff, a couple of contractors and several volunteers at the moment, but our, our mandate, if you will, is to be the voice of lived experience, uh -huh. to advocate for human rights, social justice, um, stigma and discrimination reduction, all of those things, and that um, so we have a part to play in talking to the media. We um, use the arts a lot, um, so we support, promote, and look at um, you know how if musicians or actors or artists or performers are looking at saying you know we want to do this mm. thing for mental health, we'll help shape a script so that's safe or we'll help look at lyrics or find a way of promoting that. Mm. Um, we um, we do systemic advocacy, it's called. So we don't do personal one-on-one -on -one advocacy. Mm -hmm. But we, if someone rings us and says, look, I don't know where to go, we if we don't have the answer immediately, we will research the answer and get back to those people and their families. Um, mm -hmm. We will give them some advice so there's we get quite a lot of phone calls like we were talking before of yeah you know i want to get off my medication but who do i go to yeah, yeah. or some people you know um a lot of families that don't know how to how to help their help their loved ones through things and support so we do that we also do a lot of systemic advocacy we do is we do a whole lot of events really exciting events to get um, people with lived experience along hear their views on a particular mm. topic like the, the Suicide Prevention Forum recently and then we take that information, we compile it and we take that to the Ministry of Health mm -hmm. um, we sit on lots of different advisory boards and you know clinical governance stuff and we're at the time of the year right now where mm. um, 
interesting time of year for yeah. <laughs> for for a lot of New Zealanders. Hopefully, yeah. And it, and it feels a bit more interesting this year than it than it has in the yes. past. <laughs> but uh, I was thinking, like, one of the things that you guys must offer is, um, we hear this. Well, I think it's a particularly trite kind of um, trope cliche of uh, people just need to pick themselves up and harden up, pull themselves up by the bootstraps because that's what I did, and, right. and you would know better than 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 me and and so many people about how um, you know, you talk about systemic, you know, mm. so you would know how um, interrelated. Um, when someone's in a funk, when mm. someone's hit their own personal rock bottom, yeah. um, how it isn't one step. No. Um, no. That that's basically not possible, or that even if that is, um, knowing how to approach that. So I guess that's part of the role you're able to play for people is um, some sort of understanding and guidance of um, yeah. the the things, not the one thing, but the things that they can start to do, the things that need to happen. That's right. And yeah. what we really advocate for is, you know, a tino rangatiratanga, that, that self-determination, that mm-hmm. we, we are not going to give them the answers. We are mm. not going to, you know, direct them to one person that's going to heal them. Mm. We're going to to point them in directions where they can determine their own choices and explore the, their own options that are out there. One of the great things that we have is... A, enormous library there and we're starting to put that online so that people might be able to borrow it from that but most of that library is self-help books Mm -hmm. because people will at some stage in their journey hopefully reach the epiphany that's right for them Mm. so the epiphany that was right for me is I needed to come off the medication in order for me to find the other things that fit but for other people medication might remain a part of their lives but still we find that with most people that recover even if medication is a part of it, it's not the only part. There's a whole lot of yeah. more other pieces. And I think one of the problems um, that we have with our kind of medical bio model is that we really only have three choices for people when they get unwell. But actually there's thousands of choices out there. And it doesn't matter what your doctor or your family says. It's about you to explore what those choices are and what's right for mm. you. Because what's right for me is not going to be right for you. Mm-mm. So, um, are there unhelpful uh, um, self-help books? Are there, you know, uh, or is it a case of, I mean, my my sort of understanding of it is, uh, like anything, is, uh, you know, read widely, choose widely, um, pick pick the things that suit you and that you can understand. Read widely, choose wisely. Yeah. 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 Uh, Look... You know, every, be, in, be every, informed, read reviews and exactly. things like that, you know, work out, talk to people about it. But I, I, I just know it's an area where, you know, people can be overly cynical yeah. without having taken any sort of plunge yeah. towards it, right? Like, well, that's right. Yeah. And and that, that, I've, got, I've got an excellent example of that. But I think in touching on your point, a, a, a self-help book that I really relate to might be something that yeah. you'll throw behind yeah, you on yeah. your shoulder. And, for example... I know, you know, people in this space that have found, you know, religious self-help, yeah. for example, really, really helpful. But to me, mm-hmm. it's not helpful at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so you've got, yeah, like you said, read widely, but yeah, cause I choose think so, wisely. Sometimes you're going to find, um, 
some version of a self-help book inside the covers of a book that doesn't present as That's right. self-help too. And you know? just like personal relationships, yeah. you know, that peer support relationship that did really help and heal me, is about finding that that method or that book or that therapy or whatever that you relate to that makes sense mm. for you. Um, the, the good example, and, and I think it's really difficult to give somebody a self-help book because mm. no one will ever go, yeah, yeah. No, no one will ever Thanks, thank you. I needed you. that. Yeah, no <laughs> yeah. one will ever thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a good example of this is my father actually, when I was really unwell, gave me this book called Patrick Holford's um, Optimum Nutrition for the Mind. And he said, look, there's lots of really great things in there about mental health and particular diagnosis and things that you can mm. do in that. And I went, thanks, Dad. And I stuck it on the shelf, bookshelf for, I think, at least five years. Mm. And then in that stage where I was looking for things, I went, oh, God, all right, I'll bloody read this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I picked it up and um, it was an enormous part of my healing. And I know that my dad would have, you know, smacked his head against the wall and gone, oh, bloody hell, if you'd only read it. <laughs> Sooner. Sooner, yeah. you know. But... um. But it was, it was, because in... Yeah, well, well, that's like anything, you have to arrive at, like with cultural experiences, you have to arrive at them at the right time, and you don't know, often you don't know when that is. Someone buys you a ticket to a show or an album or a book and says... This, you must go. <laughs> you must. You must go. You must experience this. Um, slash, this did so much for me at this stage yeah. in my life, and they look at you blankly, like, "Yeah, I don't know what you see in the Beatles. I don't know, you know, <laughs> yeah. what you know, whatever." Exactly. And then you know, t- ten, twenty years on, they might they might come to you and say. God, I was an idiot to tell you that Led Zeppelin weren't good. They're, they're great, or you know, whatever it is. So it's the same sorts exactly of principles, isn't same. it? Yeah, 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 yeah. You have yeah. to be open to it. Yeah. You have to be interested and ready and yeah. um, approaching it right. That's right. And the ups- the upshot of that story is that I, I now am studying nutrition for mental health specifically, mm. and I have lots of knowledge around that. But it started with someone giving me a health self help book that I wasn't that you prepared thought, to a, read. Yeah, yeah, that's. <laughs> That's not for me. That, that turned out to be kind of my, my Bible, really, wow. for my own well-being. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your nutrition plays an enormous role for me. Yeah. Mm. Um, tell me, I want to ask you about, um, with the election, I don't want to get mm. too heavy into particular politics. Mind you, if you want to, that's great. But... Mm. Um, what does it mean to hear, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm approaching this with caution only because um, <laughs> people are talking about Jacinda mania and all this yes, kind of stuff, yeah, and, yeah. I, and, I, and I don't really want to, to, to buy into that either way because mm. I think it's unhelpful, but um, is it encouraging to hear her, her speak so strongly about mental health, about targeting it, about the need to... The simple answer is yes. There are quite a few politicians that are focusing on mental mm. health as their policy, and that has been an enormous push from the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, Changing Minds worked really closely with Platform Trust here in Wellington and Film for Change to create the It Matters campaign mm-hmm. that's out at the moment, mm. and that is a non-partisan campaign that was pretty much, and it's still there, so if you're still out there and you're hearing it, go to It Matters. Mm org.nz and sign up to it but pretty much it's asking every single politician regardless of who you vote for mm. to tell you that mental health policy and help for people with mental health and addictions matters to them because it matters to all of us it's not you know mental health and addictions touches every single one of us regardless of what stats you want to use of you know who's being affected mm. there's not a person in new zealand that doesn't hasn't been affected themselves or someone really close to them is affected by that and we all know that 
whilst heaps of people are getting support, there's heaps of people that aren't getting the support they need. So we're asking, we're asking people to not not necessarily pick sides in politics, sure. but pick policies. Well, that's, that's what Look I was really heavily. That's, at that's kind of what I was being cautious about. I don't really want it yeah. to be a, a, a pin, you know, pin your colours to that mast, mm. but. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, it's amazing just, that that someone as as charismatic and loved as Jacinda is yeah, yeah. is making um, is making mental health a priority. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I I really respect that, and I think there's still a lot no, of work I would to hope, go about. I would hope policy. that people would um, I would hope that people mm. would respect that, even if she's not their preferred Absolutely. candidate. You know, yeah. even if they're not a Labour supporter. Yeah. Uh, I, I would hope that people. I don't know if that happens. <laughs> you know, it, it feels like. People seem to be very dogmatically, you know, yeah, tied to one other. side or the other, yeah. and and their side can do no wrong. And I think that's a a, 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 a bit of a concern. I think this is a really inter- interesting election for that purpose, though, because we are. I mean, the arguments that I've had online, mm. for example, with people, and they're not really arguments, but it is about people saying, "I'm definitely blue," or "I'm definitely red," or "I'm definitely mm. green," or whatever, or "I'm definitely black," and then. And then what I've been trying to do is just pull apart what is it about that colour yeah. that is going right for you? What is what is the particular policy that really mm. you respond to? And a lot of people can't answer that question. No, because really, they what haven't the, looked at policy. Really, what the answer is is I grew up with that, yeah. or, or or some version of that. Yeah. You know, I like or I like that person. Yeah. That whether it's the local candidate or the leader, that's that seems yeah. to be well. A lot of people tie themselves to either upbringing or. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or whether I'm left or whether I'm right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and and I and I really, really advocate for people to do their homework mm. because there is a lot of policies this election, and I've gone through all of them. Mm. Believe me. Mm. And you know the makeup of what I thought that I might vote wasn't exactly the way I thought it was going to be. Mm. But um, but yeah, look, really dig into what are, what are the important issues for you. If it's the arts, really look at the arts policies they have because there's some pretty amazing and some pretty terrible yeah. policies in there. You know, yeah. if, um, if it's education, please look at those policies and how it's going to affect you. Mm. Um, be selfish. Look at, look at the policies that are going to affect you and your family and vote for those policies, not for a person mm. or a colour. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, you you mentioned before we started recording, and I and you know I've been aware of this, um, and I it's even come up on a couple of other podcasts I've done the 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 work that the New Zealand Music Foundation is doing yes. in terms of being linked to um, mental health and the conversations around That's it. That's right. Yeah. You're you're far more aware about that and directly involved with that than than I am. So can you talk a little bit about that and yeah. and and how effective you think it is and the importance of it? Oh, look, let's just put point blank the importance of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's just put that out there. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I think it was, yeah, last year, probably in September last year, New Zealand Music Foundation launched their mental health mm-hmm. helpline, which was um, that which stemmed from a survey that went out. Um, to musicians in New Zealand and they came together and they looked at some of the things that were happening in Australia and they decided that um, this was the way we were going to be able to help uh, help our, our musicians. And they um, they also have a 
benefactors fund or there's a few different things that, mm. that they have which is fantastic so um we from the performing arts we came over and we spoke to new zealand music foundation and we kind of been watching each other closely and we began something called Fariki Haura, which is um, several things, but there's a there's a peer support element to it. So people with lived experience being able to counsel and support those anonymously who mm. um, ring the Fariki Haura line and then they can meet with them. So it's more of a counselling relationship, but with people with lived experience. And that's a, a Koha service donation. And um, and then we've got a Facebook page so people can um, tap in and say, look, I'm running this group or I've got this information to share or I'm doing this performance and get people's support around that. So together we, we were talking and working out what works. And the New Zealand Music Foundation is a little bit further along in their journey and I think... I don't know whether the evidence has come out yet mm, of how many mm. people have used it and whether it's been successful or not. Um, and they're gathering yeah. that. We're still kind of in the pilot phase. I've been wondering about that because I've, I've really just sort of seen it mentioned and mm. talked about, which obviously is, is great and how things mm. start, but I, I guess that's the next thing is to know, well, it's yeah. one thing for it to be mentioned and for people to be vaguely aware that something exists, but yeah. is, it, is it of actual merit is it being used yeah yeah uh, and i think that's the hardest thing because it takes a little while to set up trust yes. i mean one of the one of the issues that we have is that because we're using an existing peer support service those peer support workers uh are, you know are not performing artists they're not actors yeah they're people who have had struggles and they've got through them so um we've worked out that there's probably a little bit of work that st- we still need to do with them for them to understand the unique nature mm. of the arts in that space and how that affects us but one some of the good good things that are coming out of it are that one it is really helpful for people and um whilst we we don't know know who's accessing the service and we Mm. don't want to know um we are kind of able to collect some themes around what's going on and things like um you know financial difficulties yeah. around having you know having yeah yeah well, <laughs> you as, know, as we were saying before that being the, in and out the, of space yeah the um the goalposts have shifted mm. so fiercely for i guess musicians yeah maybe in particular but really for artists yeah. anyone creative yeah yeah to you know to not be able to earn the money doing mm. the thing you love is really stressful for people the long hours i think is really stressful and um and we've got alcohol and other drugs mm. that we need to look mm. at as a bigger picture as well. Mm. Um, I want I want to talk a bit about that, but I thought now might be a good point uh, time to bring up. Um, I was going to say with regard to, to politics when we were talking about that, mm. um, the the sort of Facebook thing of being in a bubble and you know ask Facebook tomorrow who's gonna win the election yeah and you get a different answer to what's actually going to happen right and, <laughs> yeah. and, and then a different it depends who your friends are different, exactly <laughs> but um i imagine you know and you you've you've mentioned a couple of times particular facebook groups and mm. and things so that's obviously really positive but um are you what happens when things go bad obviously. well i was just yeah i was just <laughs> gonna say are you you know like you you, you said 
we're having sort of conversations in New Zealand more about mm. mental health and, and but then I wondered why you know I wondered is that just the bubble that I live in on Facebook you know as, as someone who's very involved in the arts mm. um, and very, very interested in it at least and talks to people that are that are involved in the arts it's to me it feels a no-brainer that this would be mm. a hot topic yeah but um, yeah I wonder that and I, then I also wonder if um, Facebook is part of the problem for people, you know. As you know, I mean, I've read mm. several articles about as we all have and mm. share them and po- you know post them as well about yeah. how Facebook is damaging relationships. Mm. Um, yeah, do you have anything to to say directly about that? About the the negative impact of because because one thing I was thinking yeah. was one of the other stresses that must come up for musicians now is and and certainly it does for writers too. Particularly anyone who wants to do any sort of self-publishing, is you spend like fifty percent minimum, probably ninety percent of your time becoming some sort of marketer for yourself, yeah, right? That's right. Yeah. And so, as any kind of performer or artist, you've already you're already riding a sort of a scale of highs and lows. Mm. You get on. I mean, you know directly. Mm. You're on stage. Mm. You're there's some sort of adrenaline that kicks in, right? And there's some yeah. sort of um, magic, hopefully. Yeah. That that is channeled and is the end result and then when you get a negative review or you get half a house instead of a full house or your two best friends that said they were going to go you look around and you don't see them or you know whatever that that's suddenly that's you know that's bad enough yeah we all know we can get a standing ovation of 400 people and that feel that feels fine but the second we get one person going well i think that's crap (laughs) on facebook yeah our whole lives yeah 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 and i think the reason is that as as artists we we wear our vulnerability in our art that's Mm -hmm. our job Mm. You know, mm. if we are going to play music, no one's going to come and see us if we're just plucking strings. They yeah, want yeah, to yeah. feel the emotion that you're putting into yeah. this, how we're telling our stories. And as an actor, we are, we are literally tearing our heart out and putting yeah. into another character to play that role, really. Mm. And so we are, we are really, really vulnerable, and so those things hurt a lot. So I think that in, in those cases, places that are anonymous, like social media, can be incredibly damaging because, you know, in keyboard warrior land, well, you don't a, know how people are going to take... Is it, is it anonymous, though? It's a kind of... It's Facebook's a kind of a, not. It's exactly, yeah. I was going to say, it's a kind of a blurred line mm. around anonymity, isn't mm. it? It's, 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 you're presenting a version of yourself. Mm. Um, uh, now, you might be as honest and open and authentic as, as you are in real life, on your chosen social media platform and you may have your real name mm. attached to it but unless you're and it, and it would be strange to be spelling mm. that out every day but unless you're spelling that out every day there are people that could think your authenticity yeah. is a is a fucking joke <laughs> and yeah, and vice right. versa that yeah. your that your big uh, performance art yeah. is actually a version of authenticity you know like yeah. it's so it's a very murky it's certainly easier to criticize people regardless of whether people who know who you are or mm. not mm. when you are behind a keyboard or a screen yes. than yeah, it is face to face but um i want to talk about the positives mm. of facebook mm. too so don't let me forget that but yeah 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 but i think the difficulty particularly in relation to mental health conversations on social media is that everybody has a very particular experience to them mm-hmm. and and anything outside that experience if they don't have a larger worldview of dealing with a lot of other people that have had similar experiences mm-hmm. 
it's gonna feel like someone is challenging your your own stuff. Mm. No, if someone and and I, I don't want to keep going back to this, but it's a really classic example. If if someone says medication is bad on Facebook, there'll be twenty people that jump on their yes. back and you know hit them with a proverbial yeah, stick yeah, yeah, about yeah. how that you know people don't get get yeah, yeah. their medication and. Each one of those comments is coming from a very, very personal experience mm-hmm. that is right for them. So we kind of just need to be really mindful of as much as possible opening our worldview to how other people might be perceiving those comments. And it's it's not about being PC, but it's about acknowledging whenever you say a comment that this is coming from me and my mm. experience. Mm. And I think we have to we have to take some ownership on that. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've learned the hard way lots and lots of times, uh, you know, over many, many years, that um, my job, my role to be a consumer voice is to not to be Tammy Allen's voice, mm. is to take on board experiences that I may not even agree with, but they're people's real experiences of mental mm. health in the system. Mm. And I can't, I can't validate yeah, yeah. them unless I'm bringing those those values on board with me even if they don't sit that comfortably with yeah, me i've got yeah. to kind of taken all those views so when i read those comments and i and there's certainly always quite a lot that people tag me in around yes, I was gonna, suicide i, I was just gonna say this is the, this is one of the big problems <laughs> with mm. uh, that i find uh with with facebook is that you don't actually I mean I know you can you know you can change your settings and all of this mm. sort of stuff and you can protect yourself in that way but but you there's a vulnerability that you haven't in theory you haven't totally signed off on you know like yeah. there, there's uh, look I get this like people you know I, I, I've been very I write reviews and mm. I've been very critical and there are a bunch of people that think a whole lot of things about me and mm. I'm I'm happy with that and that and that I understand that they need to process vent. it the way they want to they need to yeah. vent I've essentially I've vented mm. in my review perhaps and that then they're allowed the chance so what I find a little frustrating is when you know, friends of friends will mm. tag me, and someone's big sound off about me. It's mm. like I don't, you know, no, I don't, no. I don't, I don't mind seeing this. I'm <laughs> not, I'm not an idiot. I know that yeah. this is happening, but it's a little uncomfortable for me and those people. Yeah. Um. That I get, that I'm seeing that I don't need to be seeing that. So I just, yeah. you know, I mean, my my answer is to just to usually just to sort of remove the tag and yeah. and keep myself out of that because I'm not it- I'm not going to jump in and go. <laughs> Hey, I said this because of this and blah blah blah, mm. and I don't really care if people are, are um, uh, processing what I said in a way that's different to how I meant it because mm. that's going to happen. I'd drive myself crazy it if I tried to. Try to mean, and I think justify it. Yeah. The most most difficult. I mean, the the problems that always come up. I'm I'm a I'm a joker, and and I and I work in an environment mm. where we joke about mental health all the time. But I've learnt the hard way. Because you need to, right? We like need it, to. Need you to. know, black humour is yeah. a wonderful way yeah, of recovering. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But black humour doesn't translate on no, Facebook. No, 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 People no. People will yeah, 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 take yeah. it exactly. at, at face, face value. Facebook value. <laughs> and take yeah, yeah. serious offence yes. to that. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a really hard one to kind of, you know, I mean, I think I can, if I'm not, tagging the world and it's just my friends yeah. I think I can joke quite openly about it because they know that I'm someone with lived experience and uh-huh. I think 
you know, just like I'm not likely to to run on stage and do any wheelchair jokes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those people that do do wheelchair jokes in a wheelchair are very funny. Mm. And by the same token, I think that I can tell jokes about mental distress coming from a place that I've mm. been there. Mm. But it's um, you'll always upset people when you use humour around this, even though it's a really healing thing. Um, you wanted to talk about positive Facebook yeah. story. Should we jump into that? Let's because do that. because I, I, I think it's you know, I've I have people say either to me directly, you spend a lot of time on Facebook, aren't you ever bored by it, you know, rah, 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 it's it's no good or just they feel that themselves. And my answer is always, Yep, there's a lot of negativity and there's a lot of shit. There's a lot of crap, there's a lot of stupid things, there's a lot of time suckage. Yeah, but but there's a lot of great things that have happened for me personally out of Facebook. And let's face it, it's more great than, than bad. Otherwise, otherwise you wouldn't do it. it, surely. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. We're not we're not hopefully we're not complete idiots that are just yeah. slaves to this because like we're hopefully yeah. are getting something out of it. And so I imagine that's true of any particular facet on Facebook of yeah. you know, groups, and themes. Facebook is the ultimate peer support. Mm-hmm. It is because you you friend yourself to people of like minds. Yep. You you join groups where yep. you want to be part of those conversations. I'm I'm parts of I'm a part of lots of consumer groups. Mm-hmm. People with lived experience talking about different issues and mm. things. And shared experiences, shared people experience. sharing stories. They're also the the places where you can say. I'm having a horrible day. You can even yep. say the words, I'm feeling suicidal, and there'll be 20, 30 people that go, what do you need? What can we do for you? Where can we be? Yeah. And so, and and I think in some ways, when we were when we were without social media, it was more isolating. Yep. And I'm, and I'm loving the fact that there are conversations out there where people do use Facebook to reach for help and do re- use mm. Facebook to say, look, my life isn't perfect today, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sitting in a five-star restaurant taking photos of my food today. Mm. I'm underneath the duvet at home. I've been very um, moved a few times by people I know and on Facebook and I've seen them, you know, reach out mm. in that way, basically mm. saying, either saying I'm having a bit of a shit day and here's why, or just I'm having a bit of a shit day, or, or one step further than that and actually mm. saying, what you don't know about me, yeah. and you didn't ask, but here goes, is this, blah, blah, blah. And then just seeing this amazing response from people. Yeah. You know, just, just so many people, I don't know half the people that are jumping in, yeah. but just watching it happen and seeing these people go, it's okay, I've had that happen too. Yeah. I feel like that too sometimes. Or I know someone who had this. Or mm. here's, you know, and even doing something like going, you know, changing minds dot. Yeah. Dot and zero, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever it is, yeah. you know, whatever the organisation is, or 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 going, hey, here's my number, call yeah. me. Yeah. All those things, I, I I get quite um yeah, I've even been quite choked up a couple of times yeah. by that, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. You know, yeah. like how could you how how could, how you, could not? you not be right? Like, yeah. and so that to me, yeah, speaks volumes about what this does for people. Yeah. For for someone to decide that today's the day I have to. I guess out themselves mm. you know that's a big thing right like and so it is and you know what it, people talk about that being a really brave thing but um I really really encourage people to do it you know mm. if you need support and you don't know how to reach it you know say something on Facebook and you will find the support that you need it's really interesting I think that my um my most 
popular post ever was a day where I went, I know I'm supposed to be the poster girl for mental health, but today I don't feel it. And mm. this is happening and that is happening and I'm feeling like this and I'm, you know, my feelings of suicide are coming back, but I need to let you know that I am safe. I'm not going to act on those feelings, but I need to just say it out loud. This is what I'm doing and I'm sure by this time tomorrow I'll be feeling a lot better about this situation, but I just want to put it out there and mm. say that being the poster girl for mental health means that I don't have to have great days every day. Yeah. I got thousands of comments from people saying thank you for saying that because that's not something that we would normally say on Facebook. And, mm. and it's not about being brave, but it's about going, there are hundreds of people out there that are thinking that same way and would not post things like that. Tell me about um, what you think about trigger warnings. We, we hear this mm-hmm. term all the time now. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to be... A responsible approach to a lot of journalism to announce a trigger warning and I I'm not sure how I feel about that myself um, I guess I don't have a strong feeling against it mm. but I wonder if there is a damage towards announcing you uh, might feel you might feel uh, you know I can't I come yeah. at it from a place like I want to be challenged and if I mm. don't like it I'll step away from it but but I recognise that that's me and mm-hmm. just maybe just me. So, yeah, what do you... I think I think it's really important to acknowledge that we don't know what people's triggers are mm. and that um, we have an enormous amount of people that have had significant trauma happen mm-hmm. to them in their lives, whether it be sexual, emotional, physical, whatever. Mm. And we don't know what it is that we might be talking about that might send people back to that place of trauma mm-hmm. so I um, I like trigger warnings yeah. because it gives people the choice of whether they're going to read further yeah, yeah, or yeah. whether they're going to go oh, I'm it's an announcement so sure that this that. is yeah. it's essentially I mean that's how I've sort of see it as it's essentially yeah. a an announcement that this this might be difficult yeah and that doesn't mean it is and that, but yeah that's right but for the few it may be and the, yeah. a difficult piece can clearly still be a very important piece yeah and that people can read the trigger warning and go into it mm. knowing this yeah. is potentially going to conjure up some some stuff that's going to be very deep and yeah. and quite awful for them but that hopefully there's some sort of there, there's an agenda here towards right. towards a positivity there's yeah. a there's a there's a uh, an example of hope or a, you know stoicism or whatever that's right and it allows people to get into the emotional and mental state to go okay prepare themselves for it i'm ready i want to read about and they might actually go off and make a cup of tea and and you know take a break from the internet and then come back to it and go right i'm ready i'm gonna that's right i'm gonna clench my but i also think that you you can't just blanket put trigger warning star 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 on the top and then nothing underneath without knowing what the trigger is i was gonna say that's sort of my concern is that (coughs) i worry that it's becoming a you know yeah. does everything need a trigger warning because wow everyone no, no. can be offended by I something think, so. i think it's okay to to talk uh, to talk about what the trigger warning is so um you know you know warning um the, mm. the, you know the following has is talking about suicide or yeah. the following is talking about self-harm yeah, yeah, the following yeah. is talking about alcohol abuse or, yeah, the fa- or you know whatever it is abortion yeah um, anything this is what this miscarriage, is about you know, so you can go yeah. Okay, oh, yeah, that's definitely yeah. not something that I want to read about. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that that's okay. This is about abuse. This mm-hmm. is whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but like <laughs> like 
any human being, if you if you put do not touch on this box, but you don't know what's in the box, <laughs> yeah. you're going to open it and well, then things a, get yeah, worse. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that. That's it. I, I think like, um, you know, I, I go back to my when I was ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen years old. I was so frightened by horror films um, because of a couple of early experiences mm. of of essentially walking in on a yeah. you know, and I sort of uh, and you can still see those, those exact horror films. Those images, yeah. I've got them as well, yeah. But I kind of conquered it. I went about sort of conquering it by just throwing myself headlong into the genre, right? I'm, yeah. I'm, which you know, I don't know what that says about <laughs> me, but. I'm going to cure this. It wasn't yeah. so much that I, yeah. you know, and, I, and, I, and it wasn't like, I, this is a weakness, I need yeah. to get over this. There was just obviously a curiosity there. Like, Emotion why therapy. am I, yeah, why am I, yeah, and so why am yeah. I frightened by this? Why am I startled mm. by this? Why am I uneasy? And I, I essentially, I guess, desensitized yeah. myself to it. Yeah. Yeah, which is, and so there is that, I feel like there is that um, compulsion in me where if I see something that says, you're not going to like this, or or you might not like this. Yeah. I, I totally want to know why. I, I, yeah. You know, I yeah. totally want to know. I have that compulsion too, and there's very, I mean, there's very few things now that will trigger me. Mm. But also, I acknowledge that there are some days where I might not want to read about particular things. Mm. Um, mostly in my line of work now, it's just that I've got complete overwhelm from the day and it's oh, another mental health article that someone sent me. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, I'm sure if it's something that I have to respond to, someone will alert me to it. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, you mm. probably get, like, your... See, for me, it's, like, music-related stuff, but yeah. for you, your version of it will be, you know, every good Samaritan sending you the same story, which you've either already read yeah. or, or perhaps sort of debunked you know that's gone right. that's complete that's in the that yeah. shit isn't for my files i don't actually need that yeah. but then you keep getting sent it and sent it and and that's okay i don't discourage okay. people exactly. from sending it to me no no, no there exactly are ones i'll act upon and then yeah. ones are not and it's yeah. it's interesting um articles in particular that are that are negative around mental health some of the best relationships that i've formed with journalists is calling them out on that and saying, mm. you know, do you realise the consequences? And they don't, of putting out an article that says this or talks about that in this way or or links violence to mental distress mm. and what the long-term consequences of that are. And, and when they're educated in a really respectful way, not in an attacking way, you've done the wrong thing, they'll they'll generally be the, you know, the first people mm. to write really amazing mental health stories. They're... They're just getting the fuller picture. They're getting yeah. the, the their understanding around the um, the language. Yeah, you know that's the, right. the, the the right tools to use. And moving and, away from sensationalism yeah, yeah. into what is the actual truth around this particular issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess that's a, that's kind of interesting to me, um, and probably another example of where uh, uh, the murky old world of Facebook and social media we can run into problems. Like I, I find. Um, I find it interesting with, like, obviously the last couple of years in particular, you know, we're, we're losing a lot of musical heroes mm. for, for a bunch of reasons, yeah. you know, like, um, and not just music, you know, writers and, and, and you know, these, these are our heroes, yeah. anyone who's invested in the arts, they, these are people we've learned from, mm. and so we, we feel very connected to them. And, and, you know, sometimes it's someone who lived to a ripe old age mm. and just died of natural causes, and that's still very sad. But when it comes to things like um, 
drug, mm-hmm. I guess, overdose, drug addiction yeah. and suicide, mm-hmm. um, it can become quite a, a minefield operating mm-hmm. around, I want to acknowledge that it's sad that this person yeah. died, but I'm in no way a fan of yeah. their work for whatever reason, you know, yeah. and then you get people hounding you about that. Um, and but but it's disingenuous to say, oh, yeah, this person this, died, this and, be, and <laughs> because they had mental health issues, mm. um, I want to say that their work was probably really important, even though it never touched me. You know, I yeah. like I would yeah. never do that. I have a very I have a very sort of firm rule that I only I only want to write. You like turning up at the funeral to your yeah, exactly, exactly, great guy, exactly. Yep, I want to. I only want to write eulogy pieces about people that mm. have uh, really affected me mm. in some profound way. Because even the ones that I do, like God, there's always going to be someone who's written it better than mm. me. So if I don't really not just care about their work, if I don't really understand why their work meant something to someone else, I'll absolutely share the link that someone else wrote and did yeah. it way better, you know, and I yeah. think yeah. that's a good thing to do. But I've found that a very interesting It's a very minefield. interesting dynamic. And, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess the only advice I can give to you is it's time. Yeah. It just takes time because, um, you know, the, those, those people who are grieving the loss of a hero even if that you haven't seen that person as a mm. hero, are going to take any kind Anything of negative as, as, a, as a slight on the way that they passed, and perhaps. Twitter tends to be the worst mm. of the yeah. forms for this, right, because it's, it seems to be designed as a yeah. quick joke yeah. format for people, and a, a throwaway line mm. can be afforded so much more weight for both good and bad yeah. because of that specificity of yes, 140 we've seen, characters we've seen careers collapse over yeah, yeah, yeah. 40 characters haven't we so yeah. it, you're right it, it is a minefield and um, I think we just need to give breathing space after mm-hmm. someone dies particularly by their own hand before we can say the truth of what our relationship was with that particular artist is it a problem um, that we can't use terms like suicide no, we should in the media. No, no, but I, I know, but like it say in the media, it's mm. I think it's still illegal in New Zealand, no, isn't it? No, no, no. You can say that someone died by suicide. Well, no one does it though. You'll no. always see the euphemism "died suddenly," and you know exactly what that means. Yeah, no. Well, not necessarily. There are some that's what what we can't, what the coroner's rule we cannot report on is the method of suicide. Right, you can't... Or, okay. or the place of suicide, uh-huh. if, if that uh-huh. makes the method You can't clear. give the grisly details, but yeah. you can say this person chose to end their yeah, life. someone died of suicide. Right. And um, what some really responsible journalists will do, though, is check with the families about whether they yeah. want that as common knowledge, and that's where you might get things like they died suddenly, mm-hmm. and we can draw our own conclusions. Mm-hmm. But... Um, Responsible reporting, you know, suggests that you should have a word with the family of how they want that reported first. Yeah. But we can say that people have died by suicide or their own hand. Mm. Um, but, yeah, we, we, we report sensitively around Yeah. Because it... And the same in token with the arts. Mm. When someone comes to, to, to me and says, I've got this really amazing script around suicide, mm-hmm. right? I think absolutely we should be putting those sorts of plays mm. on. But it's not just about how wonderful it is to talk about suicide as a play. We have no idea what your audience is going to be like. Mm. So having a method of suicide on stage 
is not going to be a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but talking about the feelings that someone has in leading up to trying to make that choice or not is an okay subject to do mm. if we are looking after our audiences in in making sure that they're left with solutions for that which are healing and helpful and hopeful and things to go to get help and places to go and what recovery is. If we're concentrating on the recovery part, then those conversations are really helpful. And um, the same with suicide in the media. I, I sometimes get frustrated when we talk about someone taking their own life in the media and then all we've got is some helplines at the end. Mm. What I'd love to see is, yes, it's it's horrible and sad and tragic that this person died by their own hand. Let's talk to Bob who was in that place once and this is how he got through that time. So that you're not only, you're not only just dealing with the heart-pulling strings mm. of trauma... But you're saying a real story of a real person who has survived that mm. and that I can learn from as a reader in that story to help myself if I'm in that space or or you because I know that you're not feeling so great and I'm not sure how to help you. Because the likelihood of someone reading an article like that and actually picking up the phone and dialing that number I think is fairly slim. Yeah, yeah, or even just clicking that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but if you are giving a... a you know, a good news story, yeah. a survival story in that yes. same piece, then you are giving someone an olive branch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a really good mm. um a really good point. Um I said I wanted to talk about or I wanted you to talk about, I guess, um the aspect of mental health that's linked to or comes from addiction, recovery, substance abuse, drugs, alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um I'm not quite sure how I want that framed, but <laughs> I just feel it's a really, I feel it's a really important thing to to get some advice and some some sound knowledge on. Yeah. 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 So and, until a few years ago, we had um, a mental health sector and we had an addiction sector, and never the two shall meet. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And now we talk about it as the mental health and addiction sector. Mm-hmm. So that in itself, um, you know, lends us to the knowledge that we have all come to a place where we know that these two are, you know, linked, inextricably mm. linked. And, you know, those of us who have gone through mental health problems know that addiction often comes as part of that. And those who go through addiction problems know that, you know, your mental health is affected in that journey. Um, for me, I, I self-medicated quite a lot because, I you know, if, if I was up, I needed a downer, and if I was down, I needed mm-hmm. an upper in, in order to reach that equilibrium. And that in itself wasn't helpful for me at the time. But when I went and spoke to doctors about my mental health journey, I would never talk to them about my addiction. Mm-hmm. And... And same when I when talking to you know consumers in the working in the addiction space, they said that the same thing happened on their journeys. They were willing to talk about their addiction, but they weren't willing or happy or comfortable in talking about how it affected their mental health. So we're a lot better at one asking the question of you know what else is going on or are drugs or an alcohol part of that, um, or if you're coming in with drugs and alcohol problem, what's going on in your life that's making mm. stuff hard. Um, I mean, we you know we know through research of addiction, it's it's not just about the addiction. It's that kind of the entire social 
ills that are leading up to that point where you need to drown out the world. It's not just habit. That study that they did with the Vietnam vets where they they came home and they were all addicted to heroin in Vietnam, but then they came home and they they didn't continue their addiction because they were suddenly surrounded by community and friends and family and mm. supports and things mm. like that. They didn't require that anymore. I think the answer is trying to find some kind of social connection and it's not just the answer for addiction. You know, we get better with our mental health journey when we find the right social connections and 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 people that are there to support us in our journey and not just how we're thinking and how we're being, but, um, you know, it's people that can help us through, you know, our financial woes, our housing woes, um, the the bullying that our children are going through at school, um, the fact if you're, a, for a young kid, that we're not eating before we go to school, you know, all of these, mm. these social problems that we have are tied to our mental mm. health and addiction problems. We can't look at them as separate. And this is what I am liking about um, comments like Jacinda is making mm, in the press. Mm. And I was going to say, it's that more um, an understanding yeah. of that the issue runs deeper than just one issue. That's that, right. This interconnectedness, the fact that, yeah, um, yeah no, it's, not, it's never one single no. thing that puts you down in a hole. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, because I'm, you know, such a, you know, a <laughs> so... Um, strong on the nutrition angle when that when that news report came out about all our you know all the kids in a low detail schools that aren't having breakfast or lunch mm. I can immediately jump forward 10 years and know that we're going to see them in the mental health system because mm-hmm. they at the stage that where they need proper nutrition growth development they're seeing they're seeing poverty and and they're not getting the nutrition they need to grow that is going to affect their brains to such an enormous extent that we're going to have to be dealing with a much bigger problem down the track. So we need, as as New Zealanders, to be healing our society at a social level if we're going to be even addressing um, addiction problems and mental health issues. I listened to a podcast the other day. It was an interview with the guy Jeff Garland. He's a comedian and actor. Do you know him? He was and he's in. He plays Larry David's manager in Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh yes, 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 yes. Uh, and he's in a bunch of things. He um, talks about his, you know, he's he's an overweight guy and he has had a a raft of health issues relating to, you know, dietary problems. And he talks about his sugar addiction to the level that he he says when he's not using. And he talks Mm. about being sober. Mm. And the interviewer picks up on it and says, it's interesting that you're using the word sober around mm. sh- around sugar. And he said, oh, I, I've i learned that I need to use that because it is it is a drug. Yeah. People use this language around it being a drug. So he goes, I have just embraced the fact that, you know, I know when I'm using that I'm having a major problem and I know how good it feels to feel sober yeah. and he'll say that he'll you know he'll he'll self sabotage yeah. he'll go and have a, a biscuit and that that's him using again and I found that very powerful like his very. his his awareness like his mm. understanding of that yeah But you know what I also love about that is it normalizes the conversation Yeah and um you know, we are always in reducing discrimination and stigma in New Zealand or around the world. We are trying to find 
stories that normalise our mental health experiences so mm. that people can relate to them. You know, when I talk to people um, about uh, experiencing psychosis and they don't understand what that means, I mm. say, but, but surely you've heard your name being called and you turn around and nobody's there or you've seen someone that, you know, you've, you're sure you've seen someone and yet they can't be because that person's passed away or they're living overseas or something, but you're sure you've seen them or, you know, that, that mm. moment where... Um, someone says, oh, have you got nets? And then you can't help, <laughs> but your scalp yeah. get itchy, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. So all of those <laughs> things are really, really normal, like mm. normal things that we mm. all experience, but actually they're all seeing or hearing or feeling things mm. that Sensory. don't exist to yeah, the other yeah, people yeah. in the room. And that and that is all psychosis is. It's just yeah. hearing, seeing, feeling, whatever, things that other people in the room can't. And when you break it down and normalise it to that extent, it's not so scary. Yeah. So I love stories yeah, yeah, like yeah, that. Story. S- yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's an addiction. It is. And yeah, it's an addiction and, and, we all have. And again, it's well. That's it. It's like he he's he was explaining it as his personal story, mm. but he was using this language that meant a person could understand it as an addiction mm. when a lot of people don't think of it as any sort of addiction. Yeah. But I think most people know, if not some sort of sugar rush, yeah. they certainly know versions of comfort eating or feeling guilty for binging, you know, like those sorts of things. And that's what it all brought out for me was, and then I thought like, he's using this language that is comparable to, you know, someone who uses heroin. Mm. And there are a lot of people who don't understand at all Mm. what that must be or what that's like, but Mm. they, but they understand the, um, the negative aspect of it, like the, yeah. the they understand the addiction idea and they understand the language that's used. So to yeah. hear it used about something that's in the in everyone's lives every day. Yeah. And and in saying that, we also need to probably acknowledge that there will be a lot of people out there that go, "Well, sugar is nothing like a heroin addiction." Yeah, and that's okay too because it's in, in normalizing something. We're not trying to minimize those extreme no. experiences. We're just trying to help people who have no concept of those. Well, again, experiences what again, what understand. he did was he essentially went on to basically say it was his, and you know, he he admitted to using other. Mm drugs over the years but he said it was his version of something like that he said you know i want to be clear like i'm saying sober because to me using sugar mm. grabbing it like needing it mm. falling off the wagon to indulge in it is for him Coming. well but for him it was like someone falling off the wagon mm. um over drink yeah. or marijuana or cocaine yeah. or anything else yeah and yeah. so he he had come to sort of see it that way and it's a particularly um, interesting issue around the arts too, because it's so it's so much part of our culture, and it's really difficult to be working in the arts and not come across drugs and alcohol, mm. and to be teetotal in that environment is almost like to shun your peers and say what you're yeah. doing is not cool. You yeah. know, it's, you know if you go out after a, a performance or after a gig and you're the one drinking the soda water, people are going to call you out. Mm. Um, and and you know the the same you know in in the film industry, if you go out to a rap party and you're and you're going <laughs> to say no to a line, then that's you know something that you you mm. might be judging other people for doing that, and and yet it is. It is an enormous part of um, what That's we a, see in our industry and really hard to say no to, how particularly you, on those highs. How do you, I was going to say, how do you understand that to have happened? Is it a case of 
are wanting to um, extend the highs, the high? wanting to yeah, wanting to channel and extend, wanting to. Um, I'm yeah. sure there's a part of that. Yeah, I mean, certainly with alcohol and the self winding down and, and the self medicating type aspect too. It's yeah, also, yeah. I mean, it's it's such intense work mm, isn't mm, it mm. you know whether it's you know music or drama or film or whatever mm. it is they're, they're long hours it's intense emotional input that you're putting in minimal putting, minimal um, yeah. fiscal payoff quite That's often right. minimal fiscal in, in, payoff in terms of your whole even if it's a good box minimal office <laughs> yeah exactly even if it's yep. a good box office you go back to eight yeah. weeks of rehearsal or whatever it is That's with right. minimal breaks and you know intense periods of yeah 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 and so there's a release yeah. that happens that's right yeah that, yeah that needs to happen really mm. and to to celebrate to unwind to relax all of those things mm. and it's it's in that release stage that things can mm. Mm. can become unsafe i guess what um do you think is most positive uh, most um, rewarding for you and pleasing to you about both personally the work that you're doing and I guess through that what the organization you're working for is trying to do like what's the what's the what's the single best thing that's happening in all of this that our name speaks exactly what we do we're, we're out there every day changing minds Mm-hmm. And we do that in, in millions of different ways with such a skeleton staff and skeleton funding. We do really rely um, on the, the, the few contracts we have and the, you know, the donations from people to keep doing amazing work that we're doing. But the thing that really lets me, has a buzz on for me, is that we get to imagine a new way of doing something and then we just do it. Mm. and. If it, you know, and we've got enough evidence behind to know whether something's going to work or not, but it's exciting and it's new and it's changing people's minds. And I mean, one of one of the projects that is just in its inception at the moment, we've done a pilot, a prototype so far, but um, we're looking to try and gain funding to take it through past prototype. Is a virtual reality project. So we are, we've collected and we're still collecting you know, hundreds of lived experience stories from around the country. And with those stories, you know, like, like you and I sitting on the couch at the mm. moment, you know me as a whole person now, so you don't look at me and go, oh, well, you know, she's mm-hmm. been nuts, you know. And so they put, put me in the, mm. in the bag with the other mad people and cross the, cross the road when you come to me because you know my experience. We've got to know each other quite a lot mm. just in this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're not likely to judge me if I then now list the eight diagnoses that I've got. We've got it's what's called the power of contact. So what we think we can do with virtual reality is give you that sense of sitting in the room and getting to know a whole person mm. that divulges to you that they have this lived experience and you don't judge them for it because you've got to know them and you're able to interact with them. And then we're hoping that that experience then when people leave the virtual reality suite is that they take that knowledge into their life and to not judge people. And that can be really useful for clinicians, for family and whanau, for, um, for people working in social services, for example. Uh, and so the way we're doing that is we are, we're grabbing stories from people. We're 
turning it into small five-minute scripts. We're casting actors to play these mm. characters so that the person themselves can remain anonymous and that we can have a little bit mm. of creative licence to make sure we get the messages across. Mm-hmm. Then we're working with um, Titan Ideas, which are virtual reality and augmented reality gaming designers, and they're gamifying the space so that when you step into virtual reality, you can actually interact with it. So, wow. for yeah, instance, yeah. if you're talking to me and I say, look, one of the most important parts of my story is nutrition, for example, mm-hmm. then um, then a tool or a tonga that reminds you that nutrition was important to me comes up and mm. you're able to reach out physically in virtual reality, select that and put it in your own kite or basket of knowledge mm. so that you can take that away with you after all. And you can go through all these stories and you go, I'm going to take um, the importance of nature from this person, the importance of family and whānau support and that person. You create your own toolbox of stuff. Wow. Yeah. And then you can hold that on your mobile phone with you. You can print it out yeah. in PDF. You can colour it in. You can decorate it. You can make it what you want. And yeah. then when you look at it through your mobile phone, it's something you can physically play with and keep after you've gone through the experience. So we're, we're super excited about using technology in ways that helps people change wow. minds. Yeah. Wow. Um, since you mentioned it, um, you don't, by all means, if you want to name these diagnoses, I, I feel like people listening might be fascinated to because they they can't see you yeah. they, they can't they can't fully see our interaction you can't see I'm normal I'm, looking, no, no, I'm quite normal well, no, no, well exactly they can, they've, they've heard they're hearing our interaction yeah, yeah, but they yeah. can't see it so they yeah. might be really interested but but if you want to do that before you do that one, one thing I did want to ask you was what was what is or was the most difficult diagnosis to hear and or live with like what was the one that you either felt most puzzled by this I do not fit this this does not fit me or most stigmatized you know around I, I, I don't think there was ever one that I was puzzled by they all made sense at the time given what I was presenting with the ones the one that I felt was most stigmatized against um, was borderline personality disorder and mm-hmm. I, I found that out after you I got the diagnosis that people felt that people with borderline personality disorder were manipulative or and none of those things are really true and I yeah. felt really hurt by people thinking that of me because of that diagnosis but um, but but, but the others uh, made sense. The one that ended up being wrong, actually, I think, in hindsight, was was um, bipolar. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was diagnosed with bipolar, but one of the things that happens a lot in psychiatry, and we are just understanding it now through a program called Equally Well, is a thing called medical overshadowing. And what that means is that people with a history of mental health issues, they come and they present with somewhat, something, and instead of... Um, the clinicians looking at what might be the root cause, what whether there's anything underlying that, um, they just go, oh well, this person's already got mental health problems, so it must be still mental yeah. health problems that's yeah. causing that. So, I presented, um, I presented with what they thought was mania at the time, and I was put into hospital with mania, and after two weeks, I seemed to get better on that. And the difficult, the, the thing was that nobody ever asked me what job. I was doing at the time, and I was working as a, tra- a, tra- a barista trainer, 
going around right. the country. <laughs> so I was having 12 espressos a day and, of course, not sleeping. And so yeah. that, you know, yeah. extrapolate that out over a year yes. and someone <laughs> is looking manic and it's really kind of caffeine intoxication. And that was when I was given that, mm. that label. But also there was other things going on at the time and um, I've since learned that I have quite a few autoimmune disorders where immune system attacks different parts of the body. And um, my thyroid is one of the things that my immune system has completely killed off for me. Thank you very much. But um, there's, there's when, when the thyroid starts to die, it splutters. And so it releases a whole lot of hormones and then nothing at all. And a whole lot of mm -hmm. hormones and nothing at all. And because it, it's in control of your metabolism, when it releases a whole lot of hormones... You look manic. You you come yeah, across you're talking as high actual energy. spikes, right? Absolutely, like it's, real yeah, yeah. hormonal spikes. And when it's not putting out anything at all, you go into a deep depression. Mm. So it was after the the birth of my son that um, it, that someone mentioned to me, "Has anyone checked your thyroid?" So I asked for it to be checked, and they went, "Oh, actually, it has died completely, mm. and we should have picked it up years ago." But there is lots of very physical causes for things that are just not picked up because they look like mental health issues um and so and so i believe retrospectively because of those two things that were going on for me at a part of my life that that was a misdiagnosis mm, mm. Mm. um i'm i'm conscious of our time only mm. because only because not not for me but for you because you're down here to do a whole bunch of work <laughs> yeah. Um, so three days of workshops. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and 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 so I've really enjoyed this, and I'm really mm. grateful for 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 our connection and our conversation, and and for you spending the time. Um, so I want to give you a open sort of like, what did I not bring up that you want to address? But before uh, there's anything, if there is anything there that you want to put across that we should have got to, um, I guess I, I I would close with saying if there's anyone listening to this that's either worried about themselves or anyone in their life mm. what's your first sort of advice reference for them there's an awesome um helpline out there that's just 1737 it's really easy to remember mm -hmm. and it's almost like a triage service it's the it's the national telehealth service and so it doesn't matter what your issue is if you ring 1737 they will direct you through to the right, to the right channel, the right channel yeah. for someone to help you with whatever's going on for you. Mm -hmm. That would be good. Um, I mean, obviously, you can contact us at changingminds.org.nz mm. if um, you've got some more questions, uh, or you can hashtag changingmindsnz in Twitter or or Facebook, and we'll get we'll get on to you as soon as we can. Um, but. Uh, my main thing is don't don't be afraid to talk about this stuff. You you know if you're going through things, I guarantee you are not the only one you're going alone. through it. Even yeah. your in, even in your close circle. Yeah. Let alone. Well, again, that's what Facebook. again that's what that thing the mm. Facebook thing is amazing for, right? Yeah. Is seeing what a difference that can make and yeah. as I say I've seen that several times so if I've seen it several times I'm sure everyone else has yeah. too that's active on Facebook seeing people say anything along the lines of I'm having a bad day yeah and then the response that they get is just astounding people mm. saying hey yeah. you know anything from I'm having a shit day too let's yeah. meet up because of that or I've had terrible days I know what it's like or or I couldn't begin to know what it's like for you but yeah. here's what it was like for me any of these things yeah 
I, it must be so helpful for people. It is, and I mean, it's probably interesting to to touch on it when pe- if people are feeling suicidal. Mm. There's a real there's a real fright, a real fear around saying to someone, I'm feeling suicidal. And that's for two things. One is, you know, it's obviously a really hard thing to say and a Mm. private thing to say, but also the main fear is what is someone going to do with that knowledge? If I tell someone that I'm feeling like that, are they going to call the cops on me? Yeah, and how long does it it stick around for? Like, am I tainted with that forever? Yeah. Even though it might have been... In the scheme of things, a passing yeah. set of feelings. And and for me, I'm one of those people that if I'm stressed, I wake up with those feelings. And so I make a promise to myself and all the people around me that it's okay to have those feelings. It's my body's way, my brain's way of going, hey, things are not going so well, you're overwhelmed, you're backed into a corner, you don't know how to get out of it. And so just knowing that when that feeling arises that that's me going, I need to change something... And, and that means that I need to reach out for help. And in saying that this is what I feel, I'm also making that promise in saying that I'm not going to act on those thoughts. Because thoughts, the thoughts themselves can't hurt you. Only you can hurt yourself. So it's about acknowledging that those thoughts exist, saying them out loud to someone, mm. and in that saying out loud, promising that you're not going to act on those thoughts. And if people around you know that that's what you do, they will feel safer in the fact that you've told them than they will if you've kept it hidden from them. And it and it creates this culture around you of going, this person is okay about telling us when they're feeling overwhelmed with stuff. And I think that's um, a really important mm. thing to say because it is the one thing that we don't talk about very well. And a lot of teachers and parents come to me and say, how do we, how do, we do that with our kids, you know? And how, how early is too early to start speaking mm. to the kids? And I... There, there are lots of different theories out there, but all I can say is how I told my son, and I started talking to him about it when he was eight years old, and I, and I said to him, look, there are, there are times in your life, and probably the first time you might get it is around about puberty, because that happens to mm-hmm. a lot of people then, that things will be really, really tough and really hard and really overwhelming, and, you get, and your emotions will be really high, and your brain will go, hey, I've got a great idea. I'll kill myself and it'll all go away. I just want to let you know that when that happens, not if, when that happens, that is a sign for you to come and talk to me about it because it happens to all of us. It's, a, again, about normalising that because mm. if kids go into that stage where they suddenly get that feeling, that, that thought, it's a bloody frightening thought to get and no, and you don't know what to do with it. But if someone is preempted that that thought will probably come at some stage in your life and this is what to do when that happens... Um, and there's kind of less danger in that space. And then in saying that, I mean, I've had very close friends that have that have lost their kids to suicide, and they did talk about it at home, and they were really welcoming parents. And unfortunately, I think we should have a, a zero suicide target, but there will be always be people that we miss, and mm. regardless of the most supporting environments, unfortunately, we're going to still lose people, and that's really hard and traumatic. But I don't think that talking about it is going to make those statistics worse. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned way back at the start your um, husband um, sort of helping you with this kind of epiphany moment mm. or, or, or being part of it. Um, 
So I feel like another thing that we should maybe uh, talk about that we, we haven't is is the role that partners particularly or, or you know family members, best friends, parents, children, but partners particularly, the role that they can play in, in helping someone. Um, but it's a tricky thing, right? They can't, you know, it's such a, a tightrope walk for for them as well. Like, yeah. not, not to say that it's any more difficult or anything like that, but yeah. it's it's such a, a, a tricky set of negotiations and navigations to make. It is, and, and those people need their own supporters because it's exhausting. And I was it's thinking tiring. it's like how um, you well you see it in movies and TVs mm. that and TV shows that the the um, the psychiatrist goes off to their own therapist. Yes, yes. You know, so yeah. that's what you're yeah. saying basically. They need their version yeah. of that, whether it's actually a you know. Yeah, if you're going to be supporting someone mm. else, you know, you need to acknowledge that that's taking a toll on your own mental health as well, mm. and and. You've got to look after yourself as well, and that means that it's okay to say, "Look, right now, I'm just not capable of dealing with it." it doesn't mean I don't love you. It doesn't mean I don't support you. But in order to be able to support you better, I need to take a little bit of time out. Um, I need this much time out, and I will be back then. Mm. Yeah. Whether it's I'm going to go away for a weekend, or I'm just going to take a couple of hours out to process this. You know, don't go anywhere. I'm still here for you, but. I need this space too, those those boundaries. And and people are really good at accepting boundaries from their partners if they're spilt out. It's mm-hmm. when... It's when... That's the lack cork. of communica- yeah, communication, Yeah, it's when we it? champagne cork or <laughs> yeah, when we yeah. crack because yeah. we haven't communicated that I need yes. my own time, that, that we're yeah. going into trouble. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the important thing is that a lot of people come to me and they say, what do I do? What do I say? Mm. And... Um, you don't need to do or say anything. You just need to keep being there. Yeah, that's it. Just, yeah. just be present. Don't don't treat them every any different. Treat people with kindness and compassion. But um, you know, it's you don't. There's no right or wrong way of of doing that. Mm. I mean, obviously, don't say snap out of it. Pull up your bootstraps. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Not, <laughs> yeah. It's not necessarily a particularly helpful thing. Yes, but. Even saying the words, look, I really don't understand what you're going through, but I'm, you know, I'm willing to listen. I'm here, I'm you know, hear, I want to know, yeah, or I want you to, you know, I want to help of, you, yeah. Some of my, um, you know, the most wonderful moments for me was where I was, you know, so unwell that I couldn't even explain or, or, um, and you know, mm. say in words what it was that I was going through, and um, someone just sat next to me and rubbed my back didn't say anything at all mm. or someone bought me a cup of tea or mm. stuck the telly or you know whatever it was mm-hmm. these these small actions are not of professionals knowing how to solve the problem they're of people going i'm willing to stick around through this i'm not going to leave you mm. when you're feeling like that mm. I, don't, I don't have to fix it yeah and i think that in with with partners and families there's this real strong drive to need to fix it and only the person themselves can fix it and a big part of it i'm sort of just guessing here a big part of it to me seems to be you know across the board with mental health seems to be some sort of feeling or manifestation of 
being alone in the world so mm. on some level so yeah. so just that tactile approach of I'm not going to say anything yeah. but I'm connecting with you I'm touching you I'm massaging you I'm yeah. you know putting a, a, a reassuring hand on your back to let you know that if you yeah. do want to talk about it that's what that offers right that you're not yeah that's right and, and also a really wonderful thing is when if someone does open up and tell you what's going on for them um, treat it as a gift mm. because they they're gifting you with enough trust to say this is this is what I'm dealing with and and really whenever you I mean it's not hard when you hear someone's story but you know they talk about validate validate validation but when you hear someone's story and you hear what they've gone through and what has led up to this you, it always makes sense, you know, and, and their response generally seems to be something along the lines of, oh, my God, you know, anyone else who had gone through A, B, C, D, mm-hmm. E, F and G, like you have, would react in the same way. Mm. You know, they are, you know, mental distress, we call it mental distress for a reason because it is, it is a response to what is happening in the environment around you, whether it's social or you know things that you brought upon yourself or relationships or whatever it is when all those things come together in a perfect storm anyone is going to experience distress over it whether you've got a diagnosis for that or not Mm. Mm. i feel like the conversations around it have um just shifted i don't know seismically in the time i've been around yeah me too um i just you know, that doesn't mean it's fixed. That doesn't no. mean we've got the right ratio or anything like that. But I no. do think, like, it's changed dramatically. Yeah. Um, and and um, you are at every day at the coalface of that, yeah. I guess. And um, if, if we have nothing else to say, I want to thank you so much for not just agreeing to do this and meeting me and talking about it and talking about your organisation, but... Um, sharing so much of your personal story, which which you're obviously used to doing and and, mm-hmm. and happy to do, but I mean it's a it's a profound example of of kind of walking the walk, talking the talk, and mm-hmm. and being a uh, an agent for the sort of change that you're after, the, the the changing of minds that you're after. Yeah. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.